I am so excited to be here today. Uh, I love this church. Um, Matt, it's a pleasure to get to know you this weekend. God's man at God's place for God's time. And I just can't wait to see what God's going to do with your leadership. Isn't he awesome? I, I think so. I, and I love your new pic, pickleball facility. It's really nice. Um, and in a few years when I get older, I, I'll come and join you in some pickleball. But uh, I got to meet with um, several of the team last night and this morning. I'm so grateful uh, that World Help is one of your strategic partners. I had dinner with Pat Culpepper last night. It was like drinking water through a fire hose. <laughs> I said, hello, I'm Vernon. And th the next thing I said was, uh, good night. <laughs> no, I'm just getting back at Pat because he, he, he accused me of being one of those speakers that when He's asked to come and speak on a topic, Matt. You just say 60 seconds of what the church wants, and then the rest of the message is what, what you want. And he was giving me a, a pretty rough time of that. I told him today I brought some of my new books on the persecuted church, and I would give him one, but he has to supply his own crayons. <laughs> but um, he said that's no problem with all his grandchildren and I can't tell you how grateful I am for what you've done to save lives in Los Bordos. Thank you. Thank you doesn't even begin to cover it, but thank you, and I hope your lives have been changed in the process too. So I am ecstatic to be here. Of course, I'm a cancer survivor, so I'm just happy to be anywhere today. Uh, so this will do. I remember the days the doctor told me to go home and put my affairs in order. I probably would not survive. Uh, they did a five-hour surgery that removed a five-pound tumor off my heart and lungs and said if they'd waited another week, it would have been too late. And 18 months of chemotherapy and radiation treatment, many, many weeks in the hospital, many days near death's door. And uh, finally, they gave me the news that I was in remission. Aren't you glad doctors are sometimes wrong? I know I am. So I'm, I'm just so glad to be here. And, and I'm here today, really not just on behalf of World Help, although we, we really value our partnership. I'm here as an advocate for the persecuted church and persecuted Christians around the world. And during COVID, when, when we were all um, hunkering down, I realized that I had all these people that I've met over the years and all these stories and all these lives that we've helped change and, and so much persecution around the world. I said, this would be a good time to get their stories in writing and get their stories out because they've asked me to be their advocate and said, please tell our story wherever you go. 
And so I wrote this book, If I Die. I'll tell you in just a minute where that, where that title came from. But If I Die, Risking Death to Live for Jesus. And um, it, it's available today. Uh, but it's not for sale. My son Josh says, Dad, don't charge people for your book. I said, why? He said, people aren't going to pay you money for your book. <laughs> I said, well, son, that's not very nice. He said, no, seriously. He said, I saw your book on Amazon for a quarter. <laughs> and he said, Dad, it was autographed. That's so embarrassing. <laughs> Just give it away. And I got to thinking, uh, I'm not taking any royalties from this book. World Help is not taking any royalties from this book. All, all the proceeds of this book are going to go and help the persecuted church like the men and women in North Korea that you saw in that video. And so I'm asking you today, whether you like the book, whether you like the sermon, whether you have crayons or don't have crayons, I'm asking you today, please, please help the persecuted church. Matt, the first time I did this, where I just gave the book away, I, I was a little nervous. And I was in a church out in California of about 100 and 150 people. And I, I remember before the service starting saying, God, are you sure you want me to do this? Because... What if nobody gives to the persecuted church? And I got all these books. And I remember being out at the table at, at the end of the service, and the first person to come up and get one of the books, wrote a check, put it in a basket. And when he walked away, I looked down, and the check was for $1,000 for one book. And I just had a moment with God right there and said, okay, God, I'll, I'll be your mouthpiece. I'll be their mouthpiece. I'll be their advocate. So today, before I begin, I'm asking you, I'm begging you, please help our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering. And please... Uh, give as generously as you can for a, a copy of that book. I'll be happy to autograph it for you. That will increase the value by 25 cents <laughs> for those of you wanting a tax deduction. I, uh, last Saturday, I was in the Ukraine. And I know that that war is not re just religious persecution. I, I, I know it's, it's evil on one side, evil, but it's more than religious persecution. But I have to tell you, we're helping thousands of lives both inside Ukraine and outside Ukraine and I'll tell you, a lot of Christians are being persecuted. 80% of the population of Ukraine is Christian. So everywhere you go, you turn around, there's a Christian dying, there's a Christian uh, fleeing, there's a Christian 
watching their loved ones die. I arrived at the border with my son who uh, is in charge of World Help's humanitarian aid shipments. He sent out 79 containers last year valued at uh, $19 million. Does that sound right, Tom? Almost $20 million. And he, they're building a, a new warehouse now because they can't even they can't even function in the small one that we have. And I pull up to the border in Romania, right up to, to the edge of Ukraine, and there's a 40-foot truck with 100,000 pounds of food. And there's a member of the Romanian parliament that gets in my van and starts driving. And it was like, come right on in because they knew that, that, they, that we were there to help. And we went to an abandoned school about an hour from the border and distributed aid. And about half of that, that tractor trailer uh, of food, where there are families there living in the Ukraine, uh, not real close to the, to the battle, so they're living in somewhat uh, safe time, but they're holding their breath because they've watched their husbands die, they've watched their children die, they've had to flee all the way across the country, and they know that at any minute those rockets can reach them again. And then the remainder of that truck took off while we were there for Kiev, the capital city. There's a Baptist um, seminary. I got to be careful. There's a <clears throat> there's a Baptist seminary <clears throat> somewhere in Ukraine. That of course uh, they can't have school, have classes. So they've turned the basement of the seminary, a building about the size of this one, uh, they turned the basement into a warehouse. And the students are now volunteers delivering food and aid and clothing and Bibles and anything they can to help these families. And I met mother after mother, no fathers, none that I found. Mother after mother, grandmother after grandmother, child after child. I'm, I met a young girl who had a five-day-old baby that she had had while on the run. And I met uh, three families that were traveling through, uh, wanting to get to Germany. And one of them was in a wheelchair, and I just could not imagine them trying to make it uh, through the Underground Railroad and all that. And I'm here to tell you, whether it's religious or not, or whether it's evil or not, there's a lot of persecution. Uh, and for those of you who support World Help, I think you'll be pleased to know that we're being the hands and feet of Jesus on the ground. And in real time, we're giving them the aid and the help that they need. And we are saving lives. And we're, we are being the hands and feet of Jesus on the ground. So thank you, Mission View. 
And forgive me if I'm a little. Uh, it was a um, incredible experience. Hebrews chapter 13, the writer of Hebrews said these words in verse 3. Remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. Remember also those being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own bodies. Let me read to you just one page out of the book in the prologue that explains why the title is If I Die. Someone suggested it would be a good marketing tactic, Matt. I could give them their choice. Either go back there and buy a book or listen to me read it. <laughs> one page, I promise. I met Ping several years ago on a trip to Vietnam. Her story of persecution is the kind that haunts you for days and weeks later. In some respects, it still haunts me today. I'll never forget the look on her face as she recounted the abuse and torture she had endured for being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. This 34-year-old woman had once been a Buddhist and lived in a monastery She'd been sick for many years when Ping accepted Christ. She was immediately healed from her disease. She is now an evangelist and church planter. And when I met her, she had started six churches and had 47 more new churches developing. One day, Ping's husband was asked by a new convert to help him destroy his family's ancestral altar. An informant turned them in and the police videotaped them. The two men were arrested and Ping's husband was sent to prison for months. She was left alone with her young children. This young woman had been arrested six times by the secret police. She suffered continuous persecution. She was beaten numerous times, detained for weeks at a time, and fined the equivalent of $250, which is six months' salary. The police beat her on the head every day for two weeks. She almost died. When she survived, they decided to tie her hands together and throw her overboard from the boat in the river. Once again, she miraculously survived, and the police then forced her to march up and down a mountain for days. She said that when she could no longer stand the beatings, she would pray and ask God for strength. One day, the police publicly humiliated her by tearing off her shirt and parading her through the streets, and she stood in that public gathering half-naked, with their hands tied behind her back and said, I live for Jesus Christ. If I die, I die for Jesus Christ. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a German Lutheran pastor, wrote these words in 1937. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. How could he have known that he himself would be hanged in a Nazi concentration camp? His only crime, he was a Christian. This past week, I was also in Poland, and I had uh, a morning off, 
and was able to do something that was on my bucket list that had never been able to get around to, and that's to take a tour of Auschwitz concentration camp. Over a million Jews were gassed and cremated in that one camp alone. One million of the six million Jews killed during World War II died in Auschwitz. And a lot of Christians did too. The persecution of Christians around the world is more severe than ever. Because of communism mainly, the 20th century saw more martyrs than the previous 19 centuries combined. In Sudan, Christians are enslaved. In Iran, they are assassinated. In China, they're still beaten to death. In more than 60 countries worldwide, Christians are harassed, abused, arrested, tortured, even executed specifically, specifically because of their faith. It's estimated by some that every five minutes a Christian is killed for their faith. Of course, we don't know for sure because so, many, so much of it is happening underground and behind closed doors. But that's an average of 105,000 believers are killed each year for simply being a Christian. That means in the past 10 years, we've seen more than one million martyrs. And I'm here to say to us today, a million martyrs is more than enough. These aren't wild rumors, nor are they simply Christians who are suffering from war and tyranny like in Ukraine. These are hundreds of millions of Christians who are suffering simply because of what they believe. In some ways, Jesus himself was a martyr. He left his home, came to this earth, and died for his beliefs. Many of his disciples, in fact, almost all of his disciples, were martyred for their faith and died and suffered cruel and agonizing death. Stephen was stoned to death. James was beheaded. Philip was crucified. Matthew was killed with an axe. James the less was beaten. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Mark was dragged to pieces. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. Jude was crucified. Bartholomew was crucified. Thomas was thrust through with the spear. Luke was hanged on an olive tree. And Simon was crucified. Only one. Only John, the beloved disciple, was the only one who escaped a violent death. One authority writes, Christian persecution did not stop with the deaths of the apostles. It has continued throughout the centuries, <clears throat> grown dramatically in the past few decades. But make no mistake, he said, Christian persecution is increasing. And in one way or another, it affects us all. My friend Mark Batterson, who pastors in Washington, D.C., inside of the nation's capital. In the introduction of his book, Play the Man, 
He tells the gripping story of the martyrdom of Polycarp, one of the early church fathers. And the martyrdom took place on February 23rd, A.D. 155 in Smyrna, Greece. And Mark said, like Jesus entering Jerusalem, Polycarp was led into the city of Smyrna on the donkey, and the Roman proconsul implored Polycarp to recant. He said, swear by the genius of Caesar. Polycarp held his tongue, held his ground, and the proconsul prodded, swear and I will release thee, revile the Christ. Eighty and six years have I served him, said Polycarp, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme the king who saved me? The die was cast. Polycarp was led to the center of the Colosseum, where three times the proconsul announced, Polycarp has confessed himself to be a Christian, and the bloodthirsty crowd chanted for death by beast, but the proconsul opted for fire. As his executioners seized his wrist to nail him to the stake, Polycarp stopped him and said, He who gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me to do so without the help of your nails. The pyre was lit on fire, and Polycarp prayed one last prayer. He said, I bless you because you have thought me worthy of this day and this hour to be numbered among your martyrs in the cup of your Christ. And soon the flames completely engulfed him. But strangely, they did not consume him like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before him. Polycarp was fireproof. And instead of the stench of burning flesh, the scent of frankincense wafted throughout the Colosseum. Using a spear, the executioner stabbed Polycarp through the flames, and Polycarp bled out. But not before the twelfth martyr of Smyrna had lived out John's exhortation, be faithful even to the point of death. Polycarp died fearlessly and faithfully, and the way he died forever changed the way those eyewitnesses lived. It seems like to me that every day we hear another news story of a, a church that is attacked or a missionary that's held hostage or a Christian who has been murdered for their faith. But why is it that so many American Christians seem not to care. One leader working with the persecuted church gives two reasons for Christians' relative lack of interest in the plight of suffering sisters and brothers worldwide. First, he said, American Christians, for the most part, are not interested in anything that happens outside of the boundaries of the United States. And in many cases, outside of the boundaries in their own community. American Christians, secondly, he said, have no experience of persecution or suffering for their faith 
that remotely resembles the experiences of many of our overseas brothers and sisters. So it's difficult for us to empathize. And many, many American Christians refuse to believe what is reported because it is so far far outside of our own experience. I've seen the actual scars. I've heard the heartache and sorrow in their voices. I've seen the suffering in their eyes. It's an unforgettable picture that is etched on my heart and in my mind forever. And I hope and I pray that God never allows me to forget. And although we live in a world of disbelief and mistrust, we as Christians cannot afford to be skeptics about persecution. It's real. Persecution is happening all around us. So we should be on our knees every day thanking God that this is not what we must endure daily. Last week, I tried to imagine my family doing what those Ukrainian families are doing by fleeing with just the clothes on their back, going from bus to bus and train to train, and bombs and rockets, and I couldn't even fathom what it would be like for me to run carrying one of my grandchildren. We should thank God that we don't have to watch our wives and our husbands and our sons and daughters suffer immense pain and anguish and possibly even death just for their faith. But how are we as Christians to respond to the persecuted church? I I think sometimes we get paralyzed into doing nothing because we don't know where to begin. Does persecution really affect us? What's our responsibility to them and what can we learn from it? How can we embrace a suffering church? All I can tell you is when I was with them last week, my mind was racing. How can I help them? How can we help them more? What more can we do? I know we've done a lot, but they still have needs. Someone suggested that when trying to make sense of persecution and martyrdom, four key reasons are usually given. Number one, persecution purifies the church. There are no nominal believers in the persecuted church. There are no Sunday morning attenders in the persecuted church. There are no casual Christians in the persecuted church. Because it's life or death. Number two, he said persecution unifies the church. There are no disputes over minor doctrines in the persecuted church. There are no struggles for power in the persecuted church. They don't argue about which translation of the scripture to use in the persecuted church. They're just glad to have a Bible. Number three. Persecution strengthens the church. Believers in the persecuted church are courageous and bold because every day they are forced to take a stand for Jesus Christ. And finally, persecution grows the church. Did you know that in 1950, when communism took over in China and missionaries were expelled, 
There were only one million Christians in the entire country of China. Today, even the government recognizes that there are at least 44 million Christians in China, and some estimate that that number could be as high as 130 million Christians. And the reason we don't know for sure is that so many of them are meeting in secret in-house churches. Consider North Korea that you saw in the video. I'll never forget our first day there, Tom and I took a small task force in. As we drove over the Tumen River, our guide told us how North Koreans come to the riverbank and wait until evening to attempt the risky swim into mainland China, and the border guards have orders to shoot to kill. One guide then added, almost as an afterthought, the Tumen River has probably witnessed more deaths than any other river in the world. Nowhere is persecution of believers more severe than in North Korea. I can't even share with you some of the atrocities committed against our brothers and sisters, especially the stories of how hundreds of Christ followers are executed every year. In one instance we met with, a group of church leaders did not reject Christ as they were ordered to do. So the police directed that a bulldozer be driven over them, crushing them to death. Can you imagine? The government is rounding up entire families up to three generations and throwing them into labor camps. A believer can be sentenced up to 15 years in a labor camp just for owning a Bible or singing a hymn or praying. All three things that we've done here this morning. And it's estimated that more than 25% of all the believers in North Korea are suffering in these prison labor camps. But most of the Christians will die within the first three years of being in that camp. So in reality, it's not a 15-year sentence, it's a death sentence. So many of the Christians who go into these labor camps will never come out. They're starved, they're beaten, they're tortured physically, psychologically, forced to work 12-hour days. It's horrific living conditions and sanitary conditions. Young boys are mutilated and dismembered. Young girls are systematically raped. Another man had been distributing Bibles throughout North Korea for years. When the officers finally discovered what he had been doing, they decided to make an example of him, so they beat him brutally over and over again until he died. But this year, after 20 consecutive years of North Korea being ranked the most oppressive place in the world for Christians, Though exact numbers uh, are difficult to confirm, according to Open Doors, this year Afghanistan is the number one persecuted country in the world. It's estimated, though, that there's 300,000 Christians in North Korea, and 70,000 are believed to be held in labor camps. 
So it means one out of every four, roughly, one out of every four Christians is in prison and will die within three years. I don't pretend to understand even a fraction of what these people are going through. But I know if I were in their shoes, I would want to know that somebody cares about me. North Korea needs more Bibles and more churches. All the persecuted countries do. But in North Korea, that's the only thing they ask me for. I believe God is challenging you and me to respond to believers who are persecuted. And I want to say that it's long past time for feeling shocked or even sorry for Christians. It's time to act. Christians all across the world must come to the aid of those who are suffering persecution because of their religious beliefs. My late friend Luis Palau said this, how many more Christians will have to suffer and die before we realize that it is our job to try to stop these atrocities. We are often so caught up with our own petty problems that we don't make time to think about the Christians who are bleeding and dying across the world. There's so much that needs to be done. So many needs. They need to have training to plant churches. In India alone, there are more than 500,000 churches without a, villages, excuse me, without a church of any kind. And we must train leaders and church planters. They need to have buildings in which to meet. Hindus say to the Christians in Asia, if your God is so great, why don't you have a place to worship him? They need Bibles. There are still millions of Christians who have never held a Bible, let alone own one. And today, today we can do something about that. They need prayer. Nothing of eternal significance is ever accomplished apart from prayer. And we must be mobilized to pray for the persecuted church. And they need us to follow their example. You say, what do you mean? Well, the persecuted church, the ones I've talked to, do not understand our lifestyle. The persecuted church does not understand our materialism, our selfishness, our prayerlessness. It's a mystery to them how they can have so very little and yet love God so very much. And they see us here in the West and we have so very much, but in comparison appear to God, love God so very little. First John 3. 17, in the message translation, if you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears. And you made it disappear. My dear children, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love.
In the words of the famous British abolitionist William Wilberforce, who helped free the slaves of Great Britain years before America, said, you can choose to look the other way, but you can never again say you did not know. When I was in Ukraine, I thought about my grandchildren back home. I want to be able to say to them when they ask me, Poppy, what did you do to help those people in Ukraine, those Christians in North Korea prison camps, what did you do? And I want to be able to say, I gave them hope. I gave them hope. Let's pray. I'm going to ask Tom Thompson if he'll come. Before we're done, Matt, just take a minute. I want us to pray for the persecuted church for just a moment. Tom. Join me in prayer. Father, may we take just a moment and place ourselves right in that country, right in that home, right in that prison, right in that place that Vernon just talked about. If we can imagine standing next to that woman who has suffered there in Vietnam, if we can imagine being next to that family who are fleeing for their very lives in the Ukraine, if we could stand with Salim and his wife there in Iraq who lost their family trying to escape with their life, if we could stand next to Mazine, that little five-year-old who can't speak today because of the atrocities of the war. Father, there's so many people, if we just stood and realized what they go through and how they're suffering and how they're asking us to remember them and to pray for them. May we never forget has been a phrase that we've used here in the States for years. But Lord, can we turn it towards our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world and say, may we never forget them. You love them, you watch over them, you care for them, but you want us to do something about it. And so today we pray. We're in this beautiful auditorium with wonderful air conditioning and great praise music, beautiful screen to see words. And around the world today, there are Christians that have none of that. They don't even have chairs. They have one Bible among them. And yet they're full of joy because Jesus is all they need. Jesus is all they have. And so, Father, may we be reminded today while we enjoy so much and we don't take it for granted to thank you for what you're doing around the world in the persecuted church. So we love you today and we thank you. And it's a privilege to pray for them and to remember them, may you touch our hearts today.
in a very real personal way. In Jesus' name, amen.